So some of us might be wondering what, what our plan is in this new building. What's our, what's our plan um, for moving forward with services, for loving people like Jesus loved us? And the answer is that it's the exact same plan. We're going to preach Christ from all of Scripture, and as a church, we're going to obey everything He's taught us until He uses us to rescue sinners from sin and death. And so our service will look exactly the same, our church will look exactly the same. We're just gathering in a new place and in a new space. Now, I think that this text this morning is a really good text for us. It's kind of like a trap off of Jesus' greatest hits. It um, is a reminder, it's a refresher of so, so much of the teaching that he has given us so far in Luke. And so, I think it should be a great morning to review some of the fundamentals of the Christian life. Some of the fundamentals of what Jesus has called us to. Because what he wants us to do is to make the most important things, the most simple things, the most basic things, the main things. You can only make a few things in your life the main things that you focus on, that you pursue and you do. So these are things in this morning that I think Jesus wants us to focus on and make the main thing for us. So let's, let's dive into what he says. Verse 22 says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. We made this point before, that Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. And Luke makes this point explicit here. And what we need to walk away with from this point is that all of Jesus' teaching and activity is directing him towards one place. Towards the cross. And if we lose sight of that, we're losing the backdrop against which we're supposed to interpret all of this teaching. About. So as we, as we go through this text, we're going to weigh Jesus' words for what they say, and we're also going to connect it to the cross. Because Jesus' purpose is heading towards there. So he wants his words to be understood in light of what he's going to do when he dies and rises for sins. Okay. So he's journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So apparently someone had been listening to Jesus. Because so far in this book, chapters, Jesus has been very direct about how much everyone needs to repent in order to be in a relationship with him. He is not painted a picture of an easy Christianity at all. He's painted a picture of Christianity that requires real repentance, real obedience, real surrender to him. You see, when he showed up, the Jewish people used to think that the entire Jewish nation was going to be saved when he showed up. And yet he goes and he starts preaching to Jewish people, you need to repent. You need to repent, is what he's saying to the Jewish people, which was a shocking message. It's one of the things that contributed to his death. So he's going around, preaching to the Jewish people, you need to repent, and it dawns on one guy, wait a second, not everyone's going to be saved, Jesus, is it only going to be a few people that be saved? In other words, it's not going to be many people that they say because the teaching is so tough and the demands are so high. 
And it would be nice if Jesus said yes or no to that question, wouldn't it? That's not how he prefers to teach. He prefers to reveal something greater than what this person is asking. So what does he say? Verse 24. This striking answer. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter through the narrow door. That word strive comes from the Greek word agonizomai. Our English word agonize sounds like that. And it's the word an athlete would use when they compete. Or a boxer when they fight. This is a word for real effort. Real endurance. Real fight. It the Olympic athletes who just competed a month ago. And the striving and the effort and the sacrifice that they went through to win their medals. Jesus' answer to this person when he says, Jesus, will those who are saying be few, is I want you to strive like an athlete to enter through the narrow door. So the process is difficult. To get through the narrow door represents a constricted space that's difficult to get through. One thing that mildly irritates me about this building, first of all, I love this building. I should not have even said that. I love this building. But there's a narrow doorway right there. And it's really narrow. Now, who do you guys think is the strongest person in our church? So the heel was standing in front of that Theo was standing in front of this door, and he was going to do everything in his power to stop me from getting through that door. How much effort would I have to exert to get through that door? A lot. A lot. That's the picture Jesus has for us this morning. Imagine Theo pushing me down to the ground, and he had to get back up, and shoving me down again, and me getting back up, and myself struggling, 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 and someone who's bigger and stronger than me keeping me from entering through that door. That's the image of the kind of effort Jesus is calling us to this morning. Like I said, we need to relate these teachings to the cross. Before we get there, I want to take Jesus' words at face value. If you are not struggling, church, according to Jesus, you are not a Christian. Real Christians deserve real effort to know and obey Jesus. This is the greatest sign that your lives are fighting. Are you fighting against your sin today? Are you fighting to read the Bible as often as you can each day? Or sorry, as many days as you can. I know you can't read the Bible constantly. Yeah. Are you fighting to have regular times of prayer? If there's no fight, there's no life. If there's no struggle, there's no surrender. So that's what Jesus means when he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. And so what I want to call us to as we move into this new chapter of church life is to redouble our efforts to know Jesus and be like Jesus. That of all the things we put our effort 
into our family, our friends, our jobs, our retirement, whatever, that the number one thing when we send effort on is knowing Jesus and being like Jesus and treating other people like Jesus treated us. We need to put forth effort to strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, as I was thinking through this passage, I got some really helpful feedback from, from the feedback team, and it caused me to think a little more. I think that Christian striving is different than worldly striving. Okay, Christian striving is different than worldly striving. In worldly striving, you strive in order to obtain something. Right? You don't have it yet. And you're struggling to obtain it. In Christian striving, you're striving because you've already been obtained. You've already been rescued. You've already been forgiven. When you receive free forgiveness from Jesus, it is the most powerful, transforming gift anyone can ever receive. There's nothing like it. And the sign that you receive it is that you start to struggle to be with him as you like him. You're not struggling to get his love, you're striving and struggling because you've already received his love, and it changes what you care about. You're not trying to get something from him that he doesn't want to give to you, he's already given something to you. And it changes everything that you do, and the whole way you live, and the whole way you fight. It's a way different kind of struggle, a way different kind of striving than the world does. We're not trying to get someone. We met someone. And that someone's changed what we care about, what we fight for. I wanted to bring up an example from earlier in Luke. In Luke chapter, let's see if I can find it, 10, verse 38. Says now as they went on their way, Jesus entered the village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up and said to him, Lord, do you not hear that my sister has left me to serve alone? But tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and trouble about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen a good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I think Martha's an example of worldly striving. This anxious sense of trying to get something. I do think Jesus would say that Mary was striving. He said, after all, that she's doing the one necessary thing. So, what was Mary's posture when she was striving? What's Mary's posture or heart? And destroy you, and then in a fight with all your might from that 
basic security. Anxious striving is not what the Lord is inviting us into. Striving from a secure place of having the truth be forgiven is what he's inviting us into. You think of a son who has an amazing father. Okay? He has an amazing father. And his father is everything right for him. Cares for him, protects him, gives him a fun time, trains him to be a man. And his son grows up and realizes that he's never done much to honor his father. He's never spent a lot of time asking his father about him and gotten to know who he is. And he feels convicted about it. And he spends real effort, real time getting to know his father. Real effort, real time honoring his father. He's not doing that because he's doubting whether his father is his father. He's not trying to get into a relationship with his father. Instead, his father's perfect and unfailing care for him has caused him to struggle to know him more. That's what our strategy should feel like.
activity, no amount of religious association, no amount of anything except for knowing him is going to allow us to be with him forever. He's eager to let people in to be with him. But only those people who know him. Only those people who know him now will get to know him forever. Verse 26. Then you will begin to say, you ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I did not know where you came from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. So what they're saying is that we were around you, Jesus. We did religious things. We attended religious services. We listened to your teaching. Their argument is saying that we're innocent by association. And no such thing exists. Church, no such thing exists. God only has children. He does not have any grandchildren. One person has really pointed out that the narrow door is only able to be entered by one person at a time. Being a part of a church is a beautiful thing. But being a part of a group of people does not get you through that door. You have to come through one at a time in repentance and faith and knowing Jesus. So I love and I'm so thankful for every person who's a part of this church. And I have to ask myself and I have to ask all of us this morning, am I depending on being a part of this group of Christians or am I depending on an intimate relationship I have with my Savior? Because innocence by association is not something that gives anyone to And then I will tell you, I do not know where you come from. In other words, we did not have a relationship where we knew each other. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So one way to tell whether or not you're in an intimate relationship with Jesus is how you respond to his words and how you respond to this book. Because what often will happen is people will have their feelings about Jesus, people will appreciate Jesus, but they won't obey Jesus. So if you're still a worker of evil, if your life hasn't come into conformity to this book yet, if this is not your authority that governs you, then I invite you today to repent afresh, to turn to Christ and come to Him. Every week, Jesus keeps hitting on the theme of repentance. Why, 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 why does he do that in each text? Because our hearts don't like to repent. Every week he invites us to repent. Because he loves to forgive repentant sinners. So depart from me, you workers of evil. You only know your intimate relationship with Jesus if his words are the authority in your life, if you partake of them, if you read them, and if you obey them. And then we move to one of the most sad verses. So he's no longer talking about the banquet feast where he'll be with his people. He's talking about the place where people will go who do not know him. He says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the 
Christian? 
friends who you've known for years and years and years, and you feel like you wonder, how do this person's ever going to repent? Church, don't lose heart. Don't stop praying for those people because God loves to save the unexpected. As we begin church life here, what we should be praying for and planning for and hoping for are unexpected conversions. People who are not like us, people who don't look like us, people who don't dress like us, who don't believe like us, becoming part of this family along with us. So Jesus means when he says, Behold, some who are last who will be first, and some who are our first will be last. Jesus loves to upset our expectations. And I'm looking for all looking forward to all the ways we can upset our expectations as we do life here together. So as we complete this verse, his answer to the text, the main point that's coming out of this is to strive to be with and obey the one who's already accepted you. And to do it not just for yourself, but for others as well. Now we're going to see another conversation that arises. Another conversation that comes up. Verse 31 says, at that very hour. So, something that Jesus has said prompts this, this interaction. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, if anyone's been paying close attention, the Pharisees are not Jesus' friends. They're not trying to help him. They're probably trying to intimidate him here. So he's saying to them that your nation is not, not everyone in your nation is going to be represented in heaven. In fact, in other nations, other ethnicities, other people who you haven't gotten along with very well, they're going to be there along with you, anyone who repents. Pharisees don't like that message. The Jewish people don't like that message. And someone kind of comes to him and says, Jesus, get away from here. Your hair wants to kill you. In other words, Jesus, you should go hide in order to protect your life. And if you go away and hide, that will, that will keep your ministry from continuing to expand and influencing other people. But what does Jesus say? And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform pure stage tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Man, next time I need to insult someone, I'm going to call him a fox. I like that. <laughs> Calls Herod a fox. A fox is a clever killer. Fox, when a fox comes into the hen house, it means death. And they're hard to keep out of there. And Herod, he already killed John the Baptist in this gospel. And so, it's realistic that Herod could have Jesus' life. That he could be plotting to kill him for the message that Jesus was proclaiming. Jesus says, don't tell that killer, that cunning killer, behold, 
force is done, and not because Herod. God turns what you decide, not Herod. And the beautiful thing is that the same thing is true for you. You're going to die one day, but not one second before God wants you to. Not one second before He wants you to. No matter how much what you're doing promotes the hatred of others, you will die one day, but not one second before God wants you to. Having this view that God is in complete charge of the world, in complete charge of you, gave Jesus the freedom to keep ministering in the face of death threats. Now, part of the striving in this passage, part of the effort God wants us to exert, is to continue to boldly be witnesses for Jesus everywhere and anywhere we go, even in the face of death threats. The reason why we don't minister from fear, but we minister from faith, is because no one else except for our Lord turns when we die. Your neighbor doesn't turn when you die. The government doesn't turn when you die. God does. And so you're striving in this world to be like Jesus, to tell other people about Jesus, and to be completely free of fear and completely filled with faith, because he's in charge.
building? Should we be a joyful church or a sorrowful church? The answer is yes. Yes, we should. We know Jesus. He's rescued us from all our sin and death, and He's going to rescue other people from sin and death all around us. And there's people who don't know Him. People who are refusing Him. People who, if they don't repent, will spend eternity wishing they had. And that must move us to sorrow. And so when people meet us, when people know us, there should be a sense of bittersweetness about our lives. Where our joy goes deep and our sorrow goes deep. We're both glad and we're both sad. Because of all the things that are true at the same time. When, when people meet us, when their neighbors meet us, when the people in the corporate neighborhood meet us, they should sense that there's a depth in us. There's a depth to the feeling we have for people. There's no mystery that as we go through the Gospels, Jesus had a depth of feeling for people. And I love anyone who spends time trying to think through theology rightly, but let us not think rightly and fail to feel rightly. Let us think the thoughts Jesus thought and felt the way Jesus felt. Part of our struggle, part of our striving is going to the Lord in prayer and asking how you have a heart of Christ for the lost. And we respond to them the way Jesus did when we saw that say, Go Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I want to gather you as a hen gathers her brood. Comforts them and keeps them warm. When we're rejected, when we're insulted, when we're treated poorly for our faith, when we're marginalized, the only emotion other people should feel from us is a sense of compassion for them. When you're mistreated for being Christian, the emotion people should feel for you is compassion for them. You see what's happening to Jesus right here? This city is about to nail him to a cross and he's lamenting for them. When someone has an attitude of disdain or superiority or hatred towards us, let's join our Savior responding with compassion for them. Because that's how he feels about them.
and instead the eyes that we ought to look at the world through are the eyes that see whether or not someone's in a relationship with Christ. And see that as a measure of whether or not someone's empty or full. Jerusalem is forsaken because they don't want Christ. And he said, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is not Lord of anyone who does not want him to be. Not a saving Lord of anyone who does not want him to be. Jesus is not in a relationship with anyone who doesn't want to be in a relationship with him. He's only in a relationship with people who want him. Which means that as we live in a city where so many don't know him, we need to strive be with him and be like him so much that people want what we have. Do you have something in your life that other people want? Does Jesus have an effect on you? Will you have a joy that other people want to have? That's what happens when you enter into his life. That's what happens when you're in a relationship other people are going to want what you have. And you can lead them out of the faith towards Him. And other people can join us here in this building saying, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what we want. That's what we want in the corporate neighborhood. Church filled with the neighbors and people that are around us saying, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together.